Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Leaders Among Us. I am your host, Alex Novales, President and CEO of the National Hispanic Media Coalition. On this show, I will be interviewing leaders from all sectors of activities, be it culture, politics, the arts, health, education, business, and on and on. What is a leader? I suggest to you that a leader is someone who is committed to making a difference in our society, in the way they think, they act, create, and innovate positive change. Today's guest fits that description perfectly. He is my friend, Castro de la Rocha, president and CEO of Altamed Services Corporation. He's been a long-standing community health leader and has taken Altamed, a nonprofit community health clinic, from three employees to a fully accredited, federally qualified health center with nearly 2,700 employees and over 300,000 patients. Castelo, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be with you. How did you do this? How did you dream this out, having something like this that has gotten so big, starting with three employees and coming um, to be one of the biggest employers around? How did you think that? Well, my career really didn't, or initially, it, it did not begin in healthcare, but it wasn't long before, uh, you know, somehow I ended up exactly in that. After receiving my law degree from uh, the University of California at Berkeley from Baltimore, I spent uh, three years uh, working with the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund, uh, sort of advocating for change uh, uh, to immigration policies, uh, battling discrimination against Latinos in the area of employment, education, and, and voting rights. Uh, and uh, I was destined to do that, but I, I don't know. Uh, something happened uh, in, in my life. Uh, and if you had told me back in 1977 that I would spend uh, my career, my life advocating for healthcare and building ultimate into what it is today, I would have... Uh, doubted you. But nonetheless, uh, that's where I'm at. And uh, we began as a, as a community clinic uh, run by volunteers in the East Los Angeles community called the East LA Barrio Free Clinic. Uh, and today we're one of the largest, uh, we are the largest federally qualified community health center. There are nearly uh, 2,000 of them throughout the United States uh, that operate to 10,000 facilities uh, nationally. Uh, through those FQHCs, about 27 million people receive care. We have been and have distinct in the honor of being the, the largest in the United States. Uh, but uh, it's been a long journey. But it's been a, a journey, an adventure, uh, something that uh, it, it, it feels wonderful to, to be where we're at today. Uh, despite the challenges in Washington, D.C., it's a good place to be. Well, it is incredible that uh, you started in civil rights. I didn't know that about you, Castelo, that you started with Maldives. That that was a mystery to me. Uh, and then you went into healthcare. But what happened? I mean, where did you see that this was needed, that this was necessary, that you decided to put the time, the patience, and the innovation to, to this project? How, how When did that happen? Now, while at Berkeley, I did volunteer. Not only did I work for Malden, but I also did some 
volunteer work with a legal center in the city of Oakland. Uh, it was called the Fruitvale District. Uh, and while I was there, uh, I met some people that were working at a clinic across the way from uh, El Centro Legal there, and it was called La Clinica de la Raza. There was a gentleman there by the name of David Hayes Baltista, a young David Hayes Baltista, who you know, Alex, is a professor at, at UCLA in the School of Medicine there, who's written more and published more around about Latino healthcare than anyone else in the United States. I met David there, and I met a whole bunch of volunteers that were working on a, on a clinic, La Clinica de la Raza. And so I saw what they were able to do. They had offices on Fruitvale. They had a dental clinics and mental health and, and pediatric clinics and internal medicine. And I was very, very impressed. But I, frankly, at that time, I was, was young and I enjoyed the parties at the Clinica de la Raza. And, you know, there were the law students across the way. It was a great place to, to meet people. It wasn't until I came to Los Angeles and I wasn't, exactly sure what I wanted to do. I interviewed with uh, different firms, private firms, uh, uh, city attorney, uh, district attorney, uh, and but I, I really had a passion and an interest in getting back to community organizing. And the truth of it is, uh, I picked up a flyer from Tom Bradley's uh, office, one of his deputy directors, uh, deputy mayors at that point handed me a flyer said, look, they're looking for a director at this clinic out in East LA called La Clinica Familiar del Barrio, formerly known as the East LA Barrio Free Clinic. Uh, you may want to go and interview. I went uh, for an interview. Uh, I arrived up with a Volkswagen that I had for many years and two trips to Mexico City from Berkeley. I arrived there, I'm sure I had sandals and I had long hair. I interviewed, uh, and lo and behold, I got the job. But listen, before I walked into that uh, that interview, I saw just a huge line of people outside of that clinic. They were there since early in the morning to get a ticket so they can see a volunteer physician at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. A ticket. It's like a and carniceria, you know, you go to the carniceria and agarra el numero uno, you yes. wait until yes. you're served. In this case, they were in line and there were hundreds of people in line to to see a volunteer physician. I thought then that I probably could make a difference. I felt like I could make a difference. I felt that, that, that I, I, I've, I've seen what they did in Oakland. I felt that I could make the difference. Uh, that I had some talent, maybe it was just naive on my part, but I, I felt that I can can make a difference. And here we am, 40 years later, still there. Now, when you say that you felt that you could make a difference, a difference how? By organizing the whole system in a different way? How, how, how did you think of it? Part of it was the demand was there, obviously. There were people in line. Yeah. Uh, mostly, uh, and I would tell you almost, 100% Latinos. Uh, I saw in their faces, uh, you know, I saw my family in line. I saw my sisters, my brothers, my abuelos, my, my tios. Uh, they were all lined there. So the demand was there. So what I needed to find were resources. How do we bring the resources that, that we needed to build this institution? Uh, I felt that I, that I, I knew some people, uh, 
I had worked with some people uh, uh, in in Berkeley, San Francisco area. There were, and I worked with some people that were involved in the Latino student movement that were back in Los Angeles. I thought that I had some connections and somehow that I would be able to find the resources. I took the job under with that assumption and, and lo and behold, that was the beginning. We had $55,000 operating budget. Today, uh, we're approaching a, tr- a billion dollars in total operating revenue at, at Altamed. It's a long way from 55,000 three paid staff members and volunteers to where we're at today uh, as an organization with 50 sites throughout uh, between Los Angeles and Orange County and, as I said, approaching a billion dollars. That's incredible. I felt confident that I, I would be able to, to bring the resources uh, uh, that we needed. Now, I can also tell you that uh, I work very hard. And many people work very, very hard. A lot of challenges over the years, a lot of obstacles uh, to overcome, uh, challenges, uh, tests. But uh, lo and behold, we, we were able to achieve something. That's really very important. Let me ask you the following. Tell us about your childhood. How was it that you got to where you were at the time you decided you were going to build something that was sustainable, that you needed resources for, but that you felt sure you could find them. How was it that you, are you an immigrant to this country or were you born here? No, uh, I'm an immigrant. I came to the United States when I was uh, nine years of age, 10 years of age. And did you come by yourself or did your entire family? Uh, my father was part of the Bracero program uh-huh. uh, in the mid-50s. Uh, he was able to to uh, obtain a permanent resident visa. Uh, and my sisters, uh, along with my mother and I, came to the United States uh, in the, you know, the late 50s, early 60s, uh, and uh, to the East Los Angeles community where we had other family in East LA. We've been in, in the Los Angeles area, the Los Angeles area ever since. And where did you go to school? What was that like? I, if you could imagine, it was uh, it was quite challenging. Uh, uh, I come from uh, from Chihuahua, from the, the Sierra uh, uh, Sierra Madre, and uh, there's a region there in the very southern tip of the state of Chihuahua, where the states of Sonora, uh, Durango, and uh, and Chihuahua meet uh, up in the in the mountains there. I grew up there. Interesting, I when I grew up. Uh, there were no automobiles, no telephones, no radios, no newspapers in that area. And infrequently, we had teachers up in the area. Uh, so there was not an organized school system there. So you could imagine, uh, I came to the United States uh, uh, speaking Spanish and literally. Uh, not not knowing how to write it or, or, or read it, but being able to speak it, uh, came to the United States uh, to a country where a different language was spoken. So my early years in elementary and junior high school through high school were extremely challenging. Somehow I survived that uh, and somehow succeeded. Uh, from even junior high was elected student body president at Roosevelt High School had probably had the strongest accent of anyone 
they've ever heard at Roosevelt, at Hollenbeck Junior High School. I went on to Roosevelt and uh, was also elected student body president at Roosevelt High School, graduated, and then went on to, to the university. I, I don't know what, uh, what propelled me to, 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 to achieve what I did, but uh, I, I think that it was part of uh, that work ethic that my father uh, taught me at a very early age. Uh, the work ethic of the people that lived in those mountains of Chihuahua, those values that I learned from my family about uh, integrity and honesty, and uh, you know the the always trying to do your best uh, for yourself and for your family are those things that I think that uh, strongly motivated and kept me moving ahead. You mentioned your dad. What about your mom? How did she contribute to? Your way of thinking. That's unconditional love, man. You know, uh, and my father as well, but my mother was was that. The hardest working woman, uh, you know, to, and, and uh, considering from where we came from and the traditional role of a female and, and what was expected of her, my mother broke all barriers. Uh, she was the first to drive. She was the first to wear pants. I mean, if you can understand that uh, this was something that was not permitted, if I can use that term, and or, or uh, you know, something that a woman would wear pants in, in the house. That's not something that was expected in, in our household, in our community. Her role was to take care of uh, uh, the family the, and be there at the beck of the husband and take care of the kitchen. My mother broke all those barriers. So you're in Santa Barbara at the University of California at Santa Barbara. You graduate. What happens there? You decided to be an attorney, or how did you get to go to law school? How was that 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 happened? I've always had an interest in politics, uh, beginning, uh, as I mentioned, in, in high school. And I've always run for different positions. I had a certain knack uh, at a... Uh, at working with people, uh, creating uh, activities and involving them and engaging them. So politics was always of interest to me. So when I arrived at Santa Barbara, I organized, uh, I was the, the founder of what became United Mexican American Students as a student organization. Ultimately, that UMAS became Mecha, Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Atlán. I was the founder of UMAS at Santa Barbara, and it was through that organization that I became involved in local student politics. Uh, ultimately, led to the creation of the Chicano Studies at Santa Barbara, uh, the research center at the university, and the support services programs for students on, on the campus. Uh, and it was there also that we put together something that was called a plan de Santa Barbara that came as sort of the, the the master plan for higher education, for the higher education for Latino Chicano students as a, at the university. So it was through that political engagement and involvement uh, that uh, that created a purpose for me uh, and and gave value to the contributions that that I made as a as a young student leader uh, that I think drove me on to drove my interest into academic studies, uh, political science, political theory. I enjoyed and, and loved, uh, to be honest with you. 
uh, I studied, applied myself, got very good marks, and then applied to the law school in Berkeley. Uh, in, in the back of my mind, I had an interest in law, and I thought that that would continue to propel me in my interest in, in politics. So I ended up at the at the law school at Berkeley, spent uh, three years there, finished my degree, then then worked for the, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund. What a great story. Now um, you lead Altamed, but you're also a collector of art. Tell us about that interest and how you came to that. The, the, the collection, the art collection that we have at Altamed, I'm very proud of what we've been able to do over the course of the last 20, 30 years. My life has been a life devoted to social justice. That foundation around social justice is what really got me involved with art. Back in the days, there were writers, poets, uh, artists, sculptors that were producing uh, some incredible pieces reflective of our struggles as young students, if I may, or young professionals, and the struggles of our community uh, around social justice uh, and, and equality. And I started collecting these uh, silk screens and uh, serographs and paintings uh, that were being produced up in the Bay Area and in Southern California. Uh, before I knew it, I had a, a mass of very large collections of some very interesting things. Today, we probably have anywhere between a thousand, I think it's about a thousand four hundred, five hundred pieces of of art uh, that is reflective of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and into into the 90s. Now, the interesting thing for me is that uh, we had a lot of wall space. Since we operate 50 clinics uh, and have two very large corporate offices in the city of Commerce, I had a lot of a lot of wall space. So art should be not only displayed because it represents the aspirations, uh, it represents uh, the, the needs and the callings of communities as an expression of the community needs and aspirations, but it is also an expression of a certain historical, a certain moment in history that are important in our communities. I thought it would be important that all the art be displayed. So we have them at all our clinics, we have them at all our senior programs, at all our facilities have uh, art, and it's there for our community to enjoy it. And, and by the way, I can tell you, <laughs> I get enough notes and emails uh, from employees as well as patients and uh, participants in our programs telling, them, telling me how much they appreciate walking into a waiting room, seeing a beautiful painting by Margaret Garcia or Yolanda Gonzalez or any of the great painters uh, that we have in our community today. That's that's how we came about with, with the art collection. Now, the interesting thing now that uh, it, it has become a collection and we are now able to display some of the pieces that we have and we have had collectors and exhibitors. Uh, the, the Museum of Latin American Art, uh, we presented a, an exhibit there with Frank Romero. There's 150 pieces. Several of the pieces were ultimates that we exhibited there. There's an exhibit with Carlos Almaraz at uh, the uh, Alley County Museum of Art. Uh, uh, there's 70 pieces that are there. It's a beautiful exhibit. 
and we have uh, two, three paintings uh, uh, from Altamet that are also in exhibit. And, and for Hispanic Month, we have a collection in exhibit uh, this 56 pieces of Altamet uh, collection in exhibit El Instituto de Cultura de México in, in Washington, D.C. It'll be there for about four or five months. So it's been a, a, a wonderful journey collecting the art. And, and by the way, I also will tell you one other thing. Many of the artists are also working at Altamed and some of our senior centers, working with their seniors and with uh, teaching them about painting, uh, whether it's watercolors or oils or doing different things. Uh, they're exercising their mind as a form of therapy. I, I think it's, uh, that it has worked very well for supporting local artists at the same time helping our, our senior populations uh, live healthier lives. Casulo, I congratulate you for having the idea that art belongs to the people, putting it in all your clinics, loaning it out to other institutions of higher learning and not so high late learning. I saw Carlos' exhibition at uh, the County Museum of Art. Marvelous. I congratulate you for that work and for that thinking because it is very progressive and it really is inspiring to our community. Thank you. Now, from art, you're also a wine connoisseur. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about that. You have a big event that you do here in Los Angeles every year. Tell us about that event. Well, that event, uh, I mean, it's, it's part of, again, social justice, believe it or not. But and let me tell you how I got to that. I was in, in, uh, in Napa about 15 years ago having dinner with a good friend of mine who was a winemaker in the Napa area, uh, Michael Trujillo, uh, who's now producing under the label Trujillo Wines. Uh, Carl Lawrence was one of, of his other labels. He is also president and CEO of Sequoia Grove and the winemaker for Sequoia Grove. And I said, you know, at some point down the line, we need to do an event in the Los Angeles area, bringing together the Latino winemakers. And I knew at that time two or three. He knew two or three. Bringing together the Latino winemakers and some of the chefs and restaurateurs in the Napa, in the Los Angeles area. And so that's where we came up with East Los Angeles meets Napa. It was our way of introducing first the winemakers to the, the, the chefs and the Latino restaurateurs in the Los Angeles area, but second, introducing both in, in a forum uh, that would display the quality of the wines that they were producing and the extraordinary meals and food that was being prepared by our Latino chefs and restaurateurs. So we did our first event, uh, hoping that we'll have 100 people. I think we had over 350 people at our first event. Not enough wine and not enough food, as you can imagine, at our first <laughs> event. The most recent event we had at, uh, at LA Live, uh, and we had a uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, close to 45, 46 vintners, Latino vintners from Napa, Sonoma, and Mendocino joined us at LA Life. I have one final question for you, and that is this. It isn't like you or I or any of the people of our generation are going to live forever. What are the leadership 
skills that you have learned over the years that you would want the new generation coming behind us who are going to be our leaders down the line, what is it that you would say to them that they need to know if they're going to be able to govern, if they're going to be able to protect our community as you and so many others have done? Number one, I think that uh, great leaders must possess a, a great, great deal of passion. Uh, and uh, for me, that passion was, was uh, it, it was that, that passion for social justice and for advocacy. At some point, that the quest for social justice and advocacy had to become something, and it became a vision. It became, that vision became ultimate. I sort of saw that there was an opportunity to create an institution that would be responsive to the needs of the community, providing services to populations in need and working with the populations that I wanted to work with. I also saw an opportunity to build a powerful, influential organization economically from a service standpoint and just bringing jobs and economic powers to the community but leveraging their position in the political process as well, be it Washington, be it Sacramento, or be it locally. Uh, Ultimate has become an organization to reckon with when it comes to healthcare. That's the first thing. The second thing, a great leader also involves the ability to empower and mobilize ours uh, and to mobilize others rather to pursue, you know, a certain goal or to influence. So that, that empowerment and involving other people and engaging other people in your vision is uh, is critical. And, you know, nothing can be done without having people to join you with that vision, without having people to follow, to follow you. And you, as a leader, must be able to articulate the vision and be able to mobilize. I would, I would tell you, uh, we have close to almost 3,000 employees here. I hope to be able to double that number over the course of the next several years. It's a, it takes a great deal of effort and a great deal of thought to maintain a vision and a commitment to that vision and a workforce that's motivated uh, to, to, to support that vision. In uh, everything that I've done, I, I, I learned this very early. You've got to have empathy uh, in uh it, 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 it's empathy is it, it's one of those other strengths that 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 uh, that a leader has to have, uh, and uh, uh, it's probably one of the most important uh, tools that they that's, as they said in 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 the leader's toolbox, uh, and that means that you got to put it in practice every single day, uh, and 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 it, it pays off. When everything is said and done, it really pays off. And the last thing that, that, that I would advise, I come from the nonprofit world, but I would tell you that I learned this very early when I was at the law school there. To be successful, if, you've been, if, if success is measured by dollars and that's what's driving you, you're not going to succeed. I've always had this, this view that to, the success is measured by what you're able to do. Uh, and 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 being able to 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 do good uh, for the right reasons uh, uh, and and if you do that if you do the right thing for the right reasons financially you will be rewarded spiritually you will be rewarded 
So that, in a nutshell, is basically what I would recommend uh, for future leaders. Uh, this is lessons learned through <laughs> 40 years worth of experience, 40 plus years worth of experience. Uh, but they have helped me a, a great deal uh, in building my leadership skills. Castelo de la Rocha, President and CEO of Altamed Health Services. Castelo, thank you very much for your participation in this program. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Adios. Adios. Ladies and gentlemen, until the next time, Alex Nogales saying, have a good day. Jeeps peeling the taco shops where the neighbors won't call the cops. Living for the good life, driving in the fast lane. Mariachi music and bikini tops. Every top thing you won't ever stop. Where the people party every night and day. Dusty road in the Corona line. You only go for a hell of a time. The only problem is having a way to life. You won't know where your time will go. But you won't regret the time you went to Mexico. Now we're stuck in Mexico. No service on the cell phone